Welcome to this week's Quill Podcast. For those of you tuning in, thank you for joining today's podcast. Today is February 23rd, 2023. The Quill Podcast is a product of the Lemieux Center for Public Policy at Palm Beach Atlantic University, located in South Florida. The mission of the Lemieux Center for Public Policy is to provide a space for reasoned, thoughtful, and civil discourse on pressing public issues confronting Florida, the United States, and the world. For those of you tuning in for the first time, my name is Robert Lloyd. I'm the Executive Director of the Lumi Center and Dean of the School of Liberal Arts and Sciences. I am always honored to be your host for today's discussion. We are in a real treat today. We have Dr. Terrell Bird as our featured speaker. Our topic is going to be on race, American society, and ways to further understanding and connection as citizens. Uh, let me give you a brief, brief introduction of Dr. Bird. He is a professor of urban Christian ministry at Palm Beach Atlantic University, has many, many years of both um, academic and practical uh, training in the field. And again, we're delighted to have you, Dr. Bird. It's good to be here, Dr. Lloyd. Uh, I am always pleased when I get a chance to sit down with a colleague and uh, have a little chat. So it's good to be here with you. Well, thank you. Well, we'll have a chat and others will be listening in later. Okay. And again, if you have questions... Uh, feel free to contact us. So, Dr. Bird, tell us about yourself. Well, um, I'm originally from Ohio. Um, I was uh, reared there, uh, and I spent uh, most of my time there. My educational background is all centered around Ohio schools, institutions. Um, I'm married and have three daughters, and um, I was recruited to Palm Beach Atlantic University when it was a college. <laughs> so okay. back in 1999, uh, Dr. Ken Mahanes, who was the new dean of the School of Ministry, uh, was brought on to uh, redirect the program. We had a religion department, but the emphasis was changing. It was kind of a paradigm shift to ministry and serving the local church. And so that's when I was brought in because I had both the academic uh, training qualifications as well as the practical ministry training because I come from a pastoral uh, experience uh, context as well. Okay. Certainly well-trained and prepared to answer some of these questions. You've also written uh, quite a bit in the field, several books, and so you bring a wealth of training. Mm. So let, let's just jump right into it. Okay. Okay, you are a scholar of Martin Luther King Jr., and uh, uh, looking back as someone who knows him well through, through what he said and written, um, how did he seek ways to foster civil discourse on issues in America, seeing that he lived in a quite shall we say, tumultuous time mm -hmm. of racial strife? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I think that Dr. King was gifted not only as an orator, but also he was gifted as a reconciler. Um, most people who have studied King know that a great deal of his training was based upon theology. In fact, he did a PhD in systematic theology at Boston University. Prior to that, he did a MDiv or Master Divinity degree at Crozer Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And then as an undergraduate in college at Morehouse, which was an HBCU, uh, historically black college university, he did a sociology. He completed a sociology degree. So he had this interesting interdisciplinary kind of 
understanding. So he had both academics. He also had a commitment to social engagement. Um, and I think Dr. King understood early on, coming from three generations of pastor preachers in his family, that he understood the relationship between uh, civility through communication, through uh, talking with one another rather than at one another. So I think it was part of his, his personality and his growth. Would you say some of his, as a follow-up, mm-hmm. would you say some of those attributes, uh, were, they, were he alive today, would also address some of the yeah. tumultuous times we live yes, in? Yes, yes, yes. Um, Robert, you know, I think the, the challenge today is that, and I just, in fact, I just returned from presenting a paper in, in Texas, um, and the title of the paper was The De- Declining Role of the Modern Civil Rights Era. And so I think that what we've done is we've seen how civil rights, at least its focus, has often uh, been perceived as being no longer relevant to today's discourse. And I disagree with that. I think that it's very relevant, but I think that the uh, for the form in which it is expressed has changed. And I think that there has been a decline in the civil rights uh, dialogue because of uh, several factors, and I can talk about those factors if you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Bird, you're the expert. <laughs> Please. Yes. <laughs> I think one of the factors of this decline had to do with the death uh, of the movement's icon. When Dr. King died, some would argue that for many, the dream died with him. And uh, in fact, James Cone, who is uh, probably the leading uh, thinker on the subject of black theology, he wrote a book called Martin Malcolm and the Dream, either a dream or a nightmare, something like that. His emphasis was that for many, Dr. King's dream had become a nightmare at the time of his death. And so some of the discussion around what's happened in this time that we live may be directed toward the fact that some believe that the dream of Dr. King has died. It died along with him. I mean, after all, he was the champion of peace, but he died a violent death. He was assassinated. Uh, So that's one area. The other uh, area where the decline may be looked at has to do with the failure of the movement to coalesce around the church. During the civil rights movement, it was the church, particularly the black church, that rallied around the message of Dr. King. And it had a a shared ethos. Uh, And that shared ethos helped not only bring them together, but it helped also to bring a sense of solidarity around the movement's goals and ideas. And so I think that there was a shift in terms of the uh, the solidarity and the role of the church in many of the movements, for example, the Black Lives Matters movement, uh, 
the Me Too movement. There are another, a number of groups that are activist m- movements, but they don't have the, the church as the central place, the hub of, 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 of thinking, of ideology. And so that has perhaps been uh, one of the challenges for movements today to keep moving in that direction. And thirdly, I think finally, the, the problem or the challenge has been a paradigm shift in the themes of civil rights movement. It's, it's somewhat like when black theology and feminist theology and some of those other specialized area of theology, at one time, uh, black theology had a very prominent place in seminaries where they were, they were, they were a little bit money. There were monies being funneled to help some of these black-oriented programs. But as feminist theology began to come to the surface more, then they began to have to share some of the crumbs uh, of developing these programs. And so in many ways, the feminist theologians felt that the black theologians were against them. They were at odds. And they really were not at odds. What they were saying is that we're fighting over the, the little crumbs that fall from the table in these institutions. Well, some would argue that this, the movement, the modern civil rights movement, uh, changed because some of the leadership of the movement began to want to bring in other groups, like the LBGTQ, those other groups, uh, into their movement. And many of those in the church were reluctant to want to align themselves uh, with the philosophical differences. Not that these weren't might have not have a voice and needed to be spoken, but the black church particularly said, we think that we need to focus on areas of racial discrimination and inequities as opposed to all these other uh, social issues that are out there. Thank you. That was very well said. Okay. <laughs> um, I, that's actually a great segue because uh, I think you were moving in that direction when you were talking about uh, the development of, of the civil rights movement to today. But uh, what initial thoughts come to mind when you reflect on today's environment? Because it's much more polarized, I think, by, by most accounts when you take a look at the data. Yeah, I think that that's true. But I think that in many ways, the polarization has, in large part, been due to the lack of education. And the, the education, here's the, the problem, that if we don't have a good grasp of historical context, then uh, the, the problems of yesterday become the problems of today because we have not dealt with them from yesterday mm-hmm. and, or, or thoroughly vetted them in a way that has helped us to grow from them. Uh, so we are, we are often bitter rather than better. <laughs> Uh, because we have not taken hold of the historical context and helped it and used it, rather, to help us move to where we are now in a positive direction. 
So um, I think there has to be an appreciation of of history, of historical context. There has to be uh, an appreciation of individuals on all sides, all ethnic groups who have contributed to the reasoned dialogue and civil discourse. Sometimes persons who are speaking with a a level head are not heard. Uh, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. That kind of that kind of uh, thought. But uh, I think that we need greater education. But education that does not strip away uh, from the contributions made uh, throughout history by various ethnic groups. You know, race, just to say something about, you know, race, racism and race, that's a social construct. We're all a part of the human race. And when we start seeing ourselves, particularly with a biblical mandate, uh, I think we'll have a greater appreciation not only for one another, but uh, much more reasoned and civil discourse. So part of the education, from what I hear you saying, is realizing who we are. Yes. And the fact that we're all humans, we're all connected, and that racism is denying part of that connection. Absolutely. That's, that's well said. I think that it's not only denying, it's a false, um, um, I want to say, it's a false construction of humanity uh, from every nation. God has you know, brought all, we will be brought together as one. I think it's a false construction of humanity when we separate ourselves because out of one blood comes all people. And so I believe that it is the educator's job to help paint that picture clearly as possible so that we can see our commonalities rather than our differences for the common good. And so working for the common good is seeing what we have uh, alike and similar to help us move forward, to help build on this great nation that we have been blessed to live in. Very blessed. Mm -hmm. Well said. Um, I think our listeners might be saying, okay, agree. Uh, what's what specific way it, does the mal education or poor education or, or incomplete education? Because I don't want to, you know, these people grow up and we have the social experiences we have. Um, but kind of a specific example. Say say you were talking. We'll take two examples. Say you're talking uh, to a black American who lives sort of in an urban area, and you're and in the same room is a a white American, say from the suburbs. You know, I'll do the classic thing, and you're talking to them, and how would you communicate these ideas in concrete ways that they go, I see it? You've already touched upon it a little earlier, but say mm-hmm. on, on several pressing issues of mm-hmm. today. Yeah, well, I would probably begin with the question of who have you met? Who do you know from another culture or ethnic community? And if so, what has that relationship been like for you. I would start there because I think that part of the education is going to be based largely on relationship because they're not going to hear you if they don't really respect or know you. 
So uh, I would begin there. And then I would try to find common stories. For example, when I was growing up, I grew up in an integrated community, even though we had not come far from segregated. Uh, but but I, I was in Ohio, and so there was much more integration. So the sports teams that I played on were integrated sports teams. I played football and baseball and track and field. And I had white friends. I'm African-American. I had Latino friends. We played together. And so when I worked on jobs and I, I was working beside others who were different than I was. And so that was our common link, that we had something in common. So I think the first thing that we have to do is find the commonalities before we begin to launch out into those very contentious, uh, argumentative uh, things about race. Um, because I think you have to develop relationships so that you can help people to have a listening ear because they are comfortable with who you are. You know, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so the first part is the relationship, uh, which makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. and develop that. Now, in today's environment, say you have social media mm -hmm. where only bits and pieces are, are expressed. So these individuals are going to be subject to that. And do you have ideas? I, and you may, I don't. But how how do you take that? You know, because the algorithms kind of sure. one individual might be directed one way, the other individual might be directed the other way, yeah. and so they're pulled apart yeah. from the issue of commonalities. Oh, yeah. Oh, come on. The TikTok generation <laughs> is guy. I mean, it's difficult to really uh, clamp down on that in a way that we can protect falsities from from going and taking wings and flying throughout the universe. Um, but I think that we must always combat that with having positive messages that go along beside it. So, for example, if someone says that my family is racist, you know, your family, and then I might come back and say, well, how can you say that without having any evidence where that was displayed, right? And so I can talk about uh, instances, experiences that we have had in my family that show that we're not a racist and not, you know, does not, that does not exist. I think the same thing can happen on a college campus, for example. Mm -hmm. I would say that uh, at PBA, for example, we have a number of, of not only professors, but also classes that enter into engaging on the subject of race, mm -hmm. you know, and do it in a very healthy and productive way. That's how you do it. You do develop uh, educators who are not afraid and, um, and willing to say, I, I can talk about this in a civil way without it becoming something that would be disruptive to the institution itself. So from a practical standpoint, you're saying outside the university, seeking ways to foster this dialogue between individuals who are different, different backgrounds, who may not just be aware of sort of the lives that they've had mm -hmm. or that they've chosen to have. On a college campuses such as PBA, to have initiatives and classes where individuals come, come together and learn mm -hmm. uh, from one another. Yes, and we, and 
we do that at, at Palm Beach Atlantic. I mean, I was uh, appointed in 2020 as the fellow for intercultural engagement. Part of my role was to help foster that common ethos of Christ's firstness here on the campus. And this uh, role has allowed me to help form a council made up of faculty, staff, students, and former students who can also develop um, programs, events that would speak into the kinds of disruptions of, of conversation <laughs> around the issue of race. And I think it's been very healthy and it's good. Those are the kinds of things, though, that need to be out on social media. Those are because those will the backlash will say, uh, well, I heard something different. Well, but this is the reality because this is actually something that's happening on campus. So to follow up on that, because you talked about the role of the church, uh, black churches in the mm -hmm. civil rights movement, mm -hmm. uh, you, you kept coming even today at a Christian university like Palm Beach Atlantic and the role that the Christian our Christian beliefs. So how it, does the Christian faith directly affect? You alluded to, you know, we have one father and mother. Mm -hmm. But two questions. So first of all, how does that affect us, our understanding of racial relations in dialogue, um, social dialogue? Secondly, what about the individual who not who would say maybe listening and saying, "Well, I'm not a Christian. You know, I'm not anti-Christian. I'm just, I just don't follow the Christian belief." So how how should I respond in this without having that core Christian faith? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I think that uh, even Jesus himself <laughs> did not approach people by saying, "I'm a Christian." He approached people with the spirit of love, respect for people as human beings. And when we respect people, regardless of their selection of faith options, <laughs> uh, we respect them because they're human beings. And we, when we love people, not because of what we think they believe, but who they are as created beings, then I think that helps us move beyond some of the barriers that may be caused by religious differences. Thank you. Well said. Because um, I, I asked this question because I myself have wondered about it. Mm -hmm. You know, we believe as Christians that we're made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Mm -hmm. uh, and that we all descend from from Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. The And so that, so it's it's difficult to say someone's not a brother or sister mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you kind of, well, you know, theologically that's simply not true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but for those who don't believe, I think laying out, you know, um, don't know where Christians by our love and leading out with that. Um, yeah, that to me, that's it. I mean, one of the reasons that Dr. King was so impactful and so affected was that he was able to engage not only the Christian community, but he was able to engage the Jewish community the, and, and, and even the Islamic community because the central idea or the focus is we have the preservation of humanity at stake. And so let's look at our commonality as opposed to our differences. Let's, we love not because of what has happened to us, but, but uh, to others, but what has happened to us. 
they know they will know I'm a Christian by my love. Mm-hmm. And that's because of what has happened to me through my faith tradition. If people see enough of that, then they may want to know what it is about you that uh, helps you to be able to navigate these uh, difficult waters of life. And you can begin to share even your faith with them in a way that is not where you're trying to coerce them, but you're trying to convince them that this is a great way to go. Wow, what a great way to end on that as well, Dr. Bird. Uh, we've come full circle back yes. to Dr. Mark, Dr. Martin Luther King and yeah. what he did and sure. um, the principles he stood for, the belief he has, how that comes down today. Yes, he did not have social media exactly. in the way uh, we did. They had media back then, but we live in a different it's environment, a different but some age. of the principles are the same is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. It's a different age, and therefore we have to adapt uh, and we have to be open to to different ways of of channeling the media in a way that can be productive and not detrimental. Thank you. Yes. Well, thank you, Dr. Terrell Bird, for being part of today's discussion. Much appreciated. Well, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. We'll have to have you back. Thank you. Um, you can be one of our second time. Uh, presenters here, which we haven't had yet, but uh, this is such a fruitful discussion. I'm so interested in it personally. The reader, our dear listeners know that I, I like the topic. Uh, so you will, you'll bring along for the ride here. Um, if you would like more information about our opportunities associated with the Lemuse Center, feel free to visit our website by simply searching www.pba.edu and then Lemuse Center for Public Policy. Another avenue for further engagement in our policy center is through the Lemieux Center for Public Policy's Facebook page or Instagram, which highlights public policy and current events in Florida, the United States, and internationally. Both our, our so- social media outlets, uh, as we discussed, are designed to foster reason, thoughtful, and civil discourse and bring people together. Uh, finally, the Lemieux Center for Public Policy would like to thank you for participating in today's Quill podcast. Thank you so much and see you next time.